Welcome to My Hard Drive Died, episode number 29, a show about hard drives, data recovery, forensics, and more. I'm your host, Jeff Halish. My Hard Drive Died is brought to you by Reclaim Me Pro, the all-in-one highly configurable data recovery software for a free 14-day trial. Go to reclaimme-pro.com. I am back with Scott Moulton from myharddrivedied.com. How are you doing, Scott? I'm doing great. How are you doing, Jeff? I'm doing good. I'm enjoying the fall weather. <laughs> um, well, uh, I, you know, for me, it's kind of a, you know, uh, an up and a down because we're coming out of a really hot summer. And then when we get into fall, uh, it kind of affects uh, motorcycle riding and things like that in my off time uh, when it gets too cold. Otherwise, I have to escape to Florida. Now, let's be honest. How much off time do you really have? Uh, not much, uh, but I do ride to and from work and then I do, you know, on the weekends or something, uh, try to ride around or go, you know, up into North Carolina or, you know, go a few small trips from that standpoint, but not, not too many. I mean, I did have the one trip that I described last time where, uh, I took off a couple of weeks back in May and basically rode around the country and, uh, did, you know, 6,000 miles, but I actually still had to stop and work. <laughs> so right. There were there were times I'm sitting in a cafe for three hours on the phone, you know, with lawyers and logged in remotely into computers and stuff like that to fix stuff. And you know, my team back here sending me text messages, hey, you know, log in and fix this raid array, you know, stuff like that. So, uh, <laughs> so I still appreciate those times, but you know, the interruption gets rid of some of the joy. Right. Right. So, but colder weather, you know, obviously affects me. I do ride in the colder weather. Um, but it's not very comfortable to sit in a full suit of armor made of leather in the office while I'm working. So. <laughs> I can see the uh, yeah, I can see the downside to that. So what what's been going on with uh, with you over now? Full disclosure: Scott and I tried to do do a couple of these podcasts, and I had screwed up my recording equipment, and I had just had so many things going on that we just weren't able to get a time to get together. So that's why it's been such a long time. It's not Scott's fault. It's my fault. Um, but with that being said, what types of things since the last time we talked to you have you been up to? What's been going on in the hard drive industry? What have you been up to personally? And so on and so forth. Well, in in the last uh, month to two months, uh, I've actually been gone most of the last uh, month, month and a half or so. Um, and most of it was work. And then um, one small adventure, There's a, there, I, I'm trying to start to get into adventure riding where you would ride off into – uh, uh, you know, a pasture and be able to primitive camp and ride a motorcycle out there, which all my bikes have always been cruisers so far. So they're too heavy to really go off road or go into, you know, a, a field or something like that okay. without your bike getting sucked, sucked into the ground. <laughs> so, uh, so, so last month I did go to an adventure bike riding group up in uh, North Carolina at the iron horse. And, uh, it was, a it's it's more adventure bike stuff like and it's a it's a conference like i've been to a lot of conferences and they've always been technical conferences and so i've never been to a conference that wasn't about computers or you know or something like that in that realm whether it be memory or or something else uh so so this was kind of my first time to go to a conference to see what other people and literally this is a bike conference and people are sitting around and they're doing talks and doing things exactly like what happens in computer conferences and other conferences, you know, presenting material and showing slideshows and, you know, eating together and doing all the normal stuff. And wow. uh, I, I was a little, I was a little surprised by it from that standpoint because it, it is very much just like 
any other community that we've been in, you know, we always feel like in the computer community that we're pretty unique in the way that we do conferences and that we have this camaraderie. And uh, so this is the first time I've been in another event where it's been like that. And, you know, they do the same things that we do in the computer industry. They just do it with other things. So at least it was quite an experience from that standpoint to see um, almost an identical kind of thing that we think of as being unique, that we are, you know, a group of misfits that we're all computer guys and that we're all, you know, in this unique community. And, you know, the motorcycle guys are kind of the same way. I'll be a, a, a lot older in most cases. <laughs> um, be, they, you know, a lot of people in their 60s and 70s who are retired and doing that kind of stuff. But, uh, but it, that was part of the adventure. And then from there, um, I went to a conference this last week, which is Scott Ogcon. Uh, I went and gave uh, a new presentation there, which should be published any day now. Um, and it's a conference that I had just done last week in D.C. So I actually was asked about six months ago to do a live lab and a new speech on forensics imagers and the progress that forensics imagers have made, which is none, uh, compared to data recovery imagers and how data recovery imagers are now starting to kind of take over the field of forensics because the forensics imagers are not advancing at all. The forensics imagers have, have, have done a terrible job of of updating how they're imaging hard drives that are damaged and doing things. They've done nothing at all. So all the data recovery tools are starting to relabel and basically become forensics imagers and adding some of the forensic stuff like uh, like Leotola can do in-case files. So that's a, a unique thing that has not really crossed over before in uh, forensics tools from a data recovery standpoint. And so I gave a big speech on that and I actually brought 20 systems and actually set up a live lab at the conference. And I did training there at the conference on all 20 systems. So I spent three hours doing training and doing uh, and doing this speech. And they didn't record the speech for that particular talk, but when I went to Skadalcon the next weekend, I gave the same presentation just without the lab part. So I recorded the lab part while I was at the previous conference, and now I recorded, or they recorded, the speech part, which will be out in a couple of days. So it's kind of a two-parter kind of situation where the speech uh, follows, you know, or, or would have been a lab. But the lab part's already been published. It's up on my YouTube channel. And so if you go to myharddrivedied.com and go to presentations, you'll see at the top there's a link for specific, say, CSX 2015, and it'll say Slides. And then if you go a little bit further down, you'll see my YouTube channel. And if you pop over to that, you'll actually see uh, all the new presentations that are up. So uh, this is kind of the first time in two years that I've done – because the last conference that I did, not that I stopped speaking because I've been speaking and doing classes. I've been doing private presentations and things for two years now. But uh, I stopped doing public conferences after ShmooCon two years ago. And so since then till now, I haven't done any public speeches per se. So this is the first round of newly recorded material, you know, and to do a 20 person live lab at a conference, I'm just going to say that was quite a, quite a lot of work. (laughs) I can't even imagine. (laughs) Yeah, I had, I had 10 Atolas and 10 deep spars and I did dual training on forensics imaging for both things. And I had pre set up, like uh, dummy images and things that you could recover from so that they would all get the experience of recovering actual files and seeing what actually happens during the thing. So, so I had 20 systems that were complete duplicates of an actual real case. And uh, so I had to drive up there uh, Saturday and then spend all day setting it up on Sunday because it takes about seven hours to set up a room 
like that and then turn around and give the speech to the lab and then break it all down and put it all back in the car. Oh. So, uh, yeah, so it was quite an effort. And so, um, you know, basically four or five days doing setup and then breakdown and, uh, and then turn around. And then I went straight to Scott Alcon afterwards and did the exact same speech at Scott Alcon, uh, this past weekend. So again, it's all about forensic imagers and, you know, I'm starting to do a little bit more from the crossover from just data recovery into forensics because I've been doing forensics for 15 years. But a lot of times we only talk about the data recovery components. Right. And you know, it plays well into forensics because the data recovery components, um, a lot of the heavier end cases, a lot of the ones that have damage and things like that that are pretty important cases, they need that kind of attentive attention to detail and recovering damage drives which they don't normally get because the forensics tools when they're imaging stuff they'll skip stuff or they'll pad it with zeros and that you know seemed to be acceptable to them in some way um, <laughs> whereas data recoveries are much more thorough and actually recover the content and you know the, the the irony to me is that data recovery tools are much more thorough and do a better job than any forensics tool that's out there and the data recovery tools have traditionally been to get your home files back, the stuff that, you know, might include porn and other stuff. It's basically, you know, ultimately not very valuable by comparison to a criminal case where somebody's life is dependent upon it. And now you're going to say it's okay for us to miss half the data because we have some sort of damage and our tools can't read it and don't even report it uh, correctly at all. And so that's not that home users' data is not important, but by comparison to somebody who's going to go to prison – for 10 years because somebody, you know, has misconstrued evidence or only got part of the evidence, um, you know, to me, that's unacceptable. And that's one of the, you know, hardest things I've had to deal with in the last 15 years is that I've built this business around not, um, not accepting what the government slash police slash whatever says with regards to the damage of the drives because their tools just don't do the job. Wow. Yeah, that that would so, be sad to to know that it's not being taken care of out there. And I guess from talking to you, it seems like the difference between data recovery and forensics to me is the forensic side of it almost seems like you've got to not alter the data in any way so that it can be presentable to somebody that's going to make a decision one way or another on whether this is admissible or it, it can be used in this type of case or it can protect somebody or you know, go against them. I mean, there's all kinds of things that, that play into that, that just, it boggles my mind, to be honest. Well, and, and ultimately the goal is to not make changes. However, ironically, there are some times that you do have to make changes, but here's one of the problems is that because the forensics tools that are out there, a lot of times the guys who are doing this, there's no real training on, there hasn't been except for me, on that component. So in other words, you know, when NCASE goes and, you know, teaches a class on how to do imaging, there's a whole process by which things do not get discussed. Like, for instance, the HPA, which is a common component, is the uh, protected area of the drive. And it's uh, if you make a change, it actually makes a change that's on the platter, but it doesn't change user data. It changes system data. And the data is written there, and it can be used. There is a way to store data as a user. So there is a bunch of things like this that are completely misunderstood that when a forensics guy goes and you know their tool says, oh, I see an HPA. Do you want to clear that so that we can copy the rest of the data? And they say yes. They don't understand that that is changing actual user data, that that's something that was configurable 
people or something that did exist. And, I, you know, granted, it's a number and it's a small number, but it is on the system area in the platter. And they, you know, part of it is the understanding of this, that they don't understand that that's what they did. How are they going to answer this question when they're on the, sta- on the stand? If, I, if they're on the stand and they're against me and I have a clear understanding of what the HPA is and where it is and what happens when you make a change to it, and they declare while they're testifying, we did not make any changes to the user data. We did not make any changes to the user area. We got 100% of the sector's copy. It's absolutely not true. It's absolutely untrue. And, you know, uh, I'm happy to teach the class, but also, you know, be on guard if I'm up against you from that standpoint. Right, right. No, that's that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, that's that would be difficult to – because, again, it, it almost comes down to a he said, she said, and, and, you know, what process is going to be followed in the legal system. Well, it, it may sound like that, except that when you're on the stand, you'll you'll see right away that, you know, the guy that – in a lot of the cases that is on the prosecution side or the police side, has no understanding of this. And it's very apparent when the questions are asked that they do not know what the answers to these questions are. Uh, and then you get somebody who is trained, who understands it, sits on the stand and tells you exactly what these things are and where this data is and how it's laid out and how to recover that data. And then the proof is in the pudding, right? Like they've done an image and they've got some damage and they've got 12 sectors where they'll say, oh, yeah, there was a bad sector on here that there's 12 sectors and you know these are now padded with zeros because you know we couldn't recover them so we don't know what's there so we just put zero there so that we don't accept anything and then i sit down in the stand and i go yeah there were 12 sectors that were damaged however i was able to recover all 12 of those sectors so here's the data that was there so inherently by Ah, definition by understanding it doing the training knowing what the tools are you're going to display to it a dirty that you are far better than the other guy Gotcha. Okay. So, no, that makes yeah. That so makes that's the advantage. And, and by people not taking classes or not understanding these things or doing these things, that's that's really the real problem. Is that they are testifying. They're doing just kind of a half job. And part of it is also to blame for the forensics community and the and the people who are developing the tools. They're not doing any additional work or doing any real work to make sure that there's an understanding or that their tools can do these things because they don't understand it either. The people developing these things do not understand what the errors are and how to correct those errors. And so fundamentally, they're doing a disservice because those people who have to testify on the stand are going to be the ones holding the bag. Right. Oh, that makes perfect sense. Wow. So that, I mean, it is that good for you as far as the knowledge and stuff that you've gained over the years that you're able to teach the industry itself? Well, so it, so if I was the kind of guy who, you know, didn't believe in teaching, you know, like, cause there's a lot of guys who are, I'm going to know this information. I'm going to keep it to myself. I'm not going to explain it to anybody. I'm not going to teach it. I'm not going to do anything. It's job security. It makes you better as a forensics expert than somebody else because the other guy you know, doesn't know it. He has no clue, didn't do any of his own work or whatever, you know, whatever class he took, they didn't teach him that. So he doesn't know that. So where's he going to get the information? So it does make a huge difference um, for me as the expert. But my opinion is also that these things should be taught and that there is it doesn't need to be this black art and this doesn't need to be this mystery where nobody's talking about these things because there's some you know piece of paper for an NDA or that there's you know some technical knowledge that's just not being spread so again my opinion is is that from my standpoint yes it makes me an expert and that I can do things in court that nobody else can do or physically in the lab 
that none of these other guys can do. But that doesn't mean they shouldn't be able to. And as because my whole goal as a forensics expert has been this. I, I, I started doing forensics because I saw how bad the industry was and that there is a situation where from watching how some of the evidence is collected and some of the evidence is reviewed that my thought process was that's horrendous, that that's terrible, and it should be better than that. And so I took it upon myself to learn it and then turn around and teach it so I can try to help people correct what's going on out there in the industry because if you are – you know. Just like today where people are, are arrested, they're in jail, they've been sitting there for 10 years, and then there's DNA evidence that you know they couldn't, process, they couldn't use 10 years ago, and now they can use it, and then they prove that the guy's innocent. Oh. Well, what about, what about our stuff? What about from a computer standpoint, the things that are being misinterpreted and the things that you know a guy can't necessarily afford to do? Uh, part of my problem with some of the things that I see uh, on a day-to-day basis with some of the cases that I deal with and 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 I don't mean to blame the police. It's not their fault necessarily because some of this has to do with budget. Some of it has to do with what they're told to do. Some of it has to do with case overload. But they're not really investigating the cases. The cases that I'm dealing with that you know I'm either hired for the prosecution or for the defense. Um, I, I don't see that they're they're they, you know they go in they look at a computer they pull five pictures off they say here it is let's charge them with this and there's no investigation. There's nothing to say. You know, did he do it? Did this person do it? Where did it come from? What happened? Like this whole chain of events that you think that should have occurred that you see in TV and all these things where somebody <laughs> investigates something and comes down and says, you know, this is what really happened. That doesn't happen in court. Almost always it's uh, almost always in these cases are plea deals or something that comes up ahead of time because they can't afford their lawyer or, you know, to, you know, hire a forensics guy is a really expensive thing. And but I'm just not seeing the cases being properly investigated they're being you know they're just doing a cursory job they're doing a preview they're slapping some pictures out or you know a spreadsheet or something and then we wait until there's a case or something else to do some further investigation or there's something else and and again i'm not trying to to say that you know that it's a some of them are doing the right thing their people are guilty there's 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 a whole realm of things that are happening here but and until there's some Real investigation happening. Um, you know, I, I don't feel like that they're doing due diligence. They're doing what they're supposed to do in a lot of cases, and and it may be on both sides as well because you have a lot of people who are also um, working on the other side who get hired by the defense who don't know these things. They don't have the education, and that they're not understanding their hardware, their equipment, and their things as well. And I, I just hate to see somebody get prosecuted and kind of. You know, from the slipshod thing that's happening out there because it's so technical that nobody understands it. Yeah, that's that would be sad. Yeah, you're right. I'm I'm sure that stuff happens all the time, and it's uh, well, that's a that's definitely a worthy goal to you know help educate people out there. And I don't, yeah, I I've always anything in technology, I've always said that, you know what, everything that I know, I can let somebody else know about. I don't have to hold it all to myself and. You know, I don't have to be the one person in the world that you can go to for this situation because the reality is a lot of people figure this stuff out anyways, and I might as well just give the information out to help others be better at what they do. Right. And I believe in sharing that information. I think that's a really, you know, and, and I know you do it every day in your podcast. You do everything you can to kind of get that information out there, share the information, uh, educate people, and and it's important to do that. I, I just think it's also you know, one of the things that's happening in um, investigations and in, in a lot of people who 
um, are dealing with prosecution and things like that, that they're just not um, getting. The, and so some of these are some of the freeways. Some of them, you know, because it is expensive to get this education, it does take a lot of time to go through the process. Podcasts and videos and free presentations and things that I've published, like everybody couldn't go to this speech at CSX. It was a lot of money for somebody to go. But I recorded it and then, you know, put out what I could from the lab standpoint or re-recorded my slides so that I didn't have, uh, you know, a problem dealing with, you know, whatever their audience was or whatever their problems right. were from me recording it on, on that particular site. I own the material. It's mine. So it did take more time for me to go back and re-record it because, you know, I might not have been do it, able to do it on site. Right. No, um, that makes a lot of sense. But give it away. I mean, give. I mean, not that I can't make a living if I give it all away. But you know, I give. A, I give away a lot. I mean, there's 200 videos out there that are real presentations and not fluff or marketing material. Um, but I, I, I'm just trying to help educate the forensics people and understanding this piece that comes from data recovery, where they're doing far more work at getting the sectors and getting the damage and recovering the damage. Um, that I just don't see happening in the forensics community at all. Zero. Right, right. Oh, that's, that is sad. Oh, wow. Well, so, yeah, on that note, <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> uh, well, ho you know, ho uh, hopefully you're going to be able to, you know, take your the information that you've been sharing and just make people aware. And I think that's what a lot of us try to do, especially in the podcast, is just make people aware of, of things that are out there. I, you know, personally... It's like, I don't care what you use as long as you're doing it to where you're getting a, you know, a good result for your end customer. If you're not, or you're doing something shortcutted or, or whatever, then yeah, I would want you to change your process a little bit. But, you know, it, when you're talking about legal cases and stuff, I mean, that is so much more intense, especially like you said, when people are going to jail or had the, you know, chance of going to jail in sitting there for something that they didn't do because they were wrongfully accused because the evidence pointed in their direction, but nobody found all the evidence and, you know, actually made a case out of it. That's, that's what's sad to me. Yeah, no, there is. I mean, and again, like I said, I'm not blaming the, you know, necessarily the forensic guy or the officer or whatever else they try to do the training. They try to do some of the stuff. Some of the stuff just isn't being taught out there. Um, as, as you guys know, I had an agreement with SANS for a while and I actually taught under the SANS, umbrella for a little while um my material so that some of those people would get that information and you know for one reason or another that that didn't work out but i continue to do the class on my own so that people can get this hardware and this other knowledge that they're not getting about ssds and that they're not getting about you know hard drives or you know physical repair uh they're just you know for when you're doing forensics the imagers just expect your drive to be good they don't expect there to be any damage and they're not doing anything to prepare for the damage. And I see 25% of the drives in the field now are bad. And it, it used to be a lot lower number, but because in forensics, the drives are normally in use and people are going to acquire them from people who are already using them. But I will tell you, on a, on a regular basis, I go out into the field and that there's drives who have damage that are still working and that they're still able to actually use the drive, but for some reason, you know, this DLL is 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 damaged, but you don't hit it unless you did some specific thing. And so there'll be, a, you know, a portion of the drive that's physically damaged that they can't uh, access or use with forensics tools at all. And I, I swear it's 25 or sometimes a little bit more. I did 20 drives on, on site at a customer uh, a month and a half ago, 
I did 20 images and on site with regular forensics tools trying to do them first, which I had the foren- I had the data recovery tool, so I didn't have a problem doing the drives. But you know, I kind of run through the forensics imagers first. When you're doing 20 drives, you do everything you can. You keep everything stacked and running through all the drives. And I had about six drives that were damaged at that site. So that's a little bit more than 25% oh, wow. of the drives that I had to go back and do on a forensics imager, on a, a data recovery forensics imager, as opposed to a forensics imager uh, meant, you know, by that's made for forensics from that standpoint. So, uh, you know, they're more costly. They're more expensive to, to do these things. But understanding the specific errors, documenting the errors, and getting back the data that's the important thing. So, you know, a lot of these devices, when they hit 20 errors, they'll just die, or even sometimes five, they just die. <laughs> and uh, it's, 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 it's funny unless you're out there. Yeah, well, that's, there that's true. And you're, on a, and you're on a time schedule and you've got to get these things done. And there's people who need their computers and you're interrupting their business and they're going to try to, you know, in this case, I was working on a federal case. So I'm actually, you know, on site at a federal location for a, for a federal case says, you know, I have the right to get the content. However, the issue becomes you're holding up a business and you're stopping people from doing stuff that, you know, they've got to go back to work. And for every hour that they're down, it's costing them money. So at some point in time, they get mad and they sue people or do whatever. So uh, time is pretty important and making sure that there's no... Also, damaged drives. The other problem with damaged drives is sometimes when you are imaging them, they don't come back again. So you only get this one shot at the drive and you image it. And if you give it back to the client and it doesn't work, then you're going to be the person they're going to blame. They're going to be like, this computer isn't working anymore because, you know, you did something to it. And you're going to be the one that's going to get blamed. Right. So so in this particular instance, if you have the backup, then it's like, well, okay, well, at least we haven't lost the data. We have the data. But your physical drive may have been damaged. And, you know, either you can blame me. Or you can replace it. At worst case scenario, I'm buying a hundred dollar drive to replace it. I'm not, you know, in a lawsuit because I've lost, you know, twenty thousand dollar database. Right. Exactly. Well, and yeah, yeah, that's yeah. You definitely got to be careful when you're, you know, recovering data. You know, I guess that's why in my contracts it basically says, you know, we do the best to protect the data, it, you know, possible, but we're still not held responsible. And you know, I know that won't stand up in a court of law 100% well, of the time, but it's a it's a barrier to entry, I guess, <laughs> or blockade. Well, well, the difference for you is that when you're doing it, your client has voluntarily agreed to that. Right. In my case, sometimes I'm going in un, you know, under a federal court order, or I'm going in under, you know, a local court order or something and I'm imaging the drive for someone who doesn't want me to be there. Oh. So, so anything that you were, you would do wrong or they would perceive that you did wrong, they're going to blame you because they don't want you there in the first place. Right. Okay. No, exactly. that makes perfect sense. <laughs> yeah. So, so I wouldn't want to be <laughs> better. Right. Being better at, you know, at, at this job, at least from that standpoint is, is, a, is that's going to be the saving grace. That's going to keep you out of a lawsuit and understanding this. And, you know, at least if I have the image, if the drive dies and one of the drives from the location I was at a month ago did dry, die later. Like they continued to use it, I knew it had problems with it. I did tell them that these drives had problems, uh, but I had images of them, so they did die later on. And at least I have a copy of it, so I can supply a copy back to them for what they had, at least. Uh, All right, not the additional work. Actually, gotcha. So before we go into emails, let me ask you a question. So, what is a great, or what's what's a tool? that people can use to basically test their drives on a regular basis. And at what point do you say 
that a drive is to the point where you really should replace it or you definitely are going to have problems here in the near, in the near future? Um, well, anytime I'm running into damaged sectors or bad sectors, that's a pretty good indication that there's a coming and pending problem okay. because the drive is supposed to compensate for these things automatically in a lot of cases. So there's right. a lot going on. And if at some point in time you're able to detect that there's a bad sector by imaging it, by you know copying the sectors, by doing something until you have a problem, uh, a lot of times even like Ghost or something like that will die in the process of trying to clone the drive. If that happens during that process, it's a pretty good indication that you know once you do get a backup or you can get a backup to – replace that drive or consider replace because it can't compensate at this point for whatever that problem is um you could you know rejuvenate the drive there's ways to do that but it's usually detrimental to the data and you might be able to get a functional drive again but i always consider i personally always think of drives as floppy disks that they're disposable and that the content that's on them uh better be backed up or there better be some redundancy or there better be something somewhere else because they're all going to go sooner or later and there's no if, and, and but about it. It's all going to go. So you should always think of it as temporary. And so this data should exist in two, three, four locations, however you're going to do it. And it's it's only bad when you first say that. When you first say that and you say, oh, yeah, I've got two terabytes of data. How am I going to sync this or do something? Most of the time, data is built slowly. So you know, you add to it every day. I add 30 megs. I add 50 megs. You know, I add a gig a day. And – if you have a process that already syncs this, it's not a big deal for it to compare it and then sync that. Um, there's a tool called Vice Versa that's pretty smart and pretty good at comparing and doing those. I use Vice Versa on some systems where I have volatile data to then copy that off to another drive or another destination uh, on a daily basis. So I set up a scripting process that for those that are detrimental to make themselves um, you know, imaged basically daily or nightly, you know, 2 o'clock in the morning up to a RAID 6 array. So things that have to be local that you would have to run locally, I can image and, and do uh, you know, on an automatic process. Whereas other things I'm storing on RAID 6, and I'm trying to keep some redundancy, but that's not all you need to do. There's, there's a lot that's involved with trying to at least make sure you've got duplicate copies. I always suggest people buy at least two of whatever their arrays are or whatever they're doing so you can duplicate them, even if you're doing RAID. Okay. Um, so, so, so there's no easy all-in-one solution from that standpoint. I would say, you know, if you if you are running any tools that have an error or any tools that run checks, uh, if you even if you just use a smart tool that can do, because smart actually has some really extended testing processes it can do, but most of them aren't enabled. So if you use a tool that can run the smart tests after hours, because they take a long time, right? Uh, if if you detect any uh, and there are sectors at least that it would know, okay, well, these I cannot read for some reason, and I'll put these in a queue to see whether or not they're going to be reallocated. If any of those numbers go up, you might want to start looking at it, and it will eventually. So whatever you're running on every drive, you know, a year later or two years down the road, it's going to start doing that. That's when those alerts coming up should be, hey, it's, you know, it's time for me to consider a new drive or – you know, it hasn't died yet, so I'm going to try to be preventative because the day it dies is the day you needed it the most, right? That's always the <laughs> exactly. Thing. And you know you have a problem, but the day it's going to die is the day you got to do a quote or you got to do something that's got to be done in the next hour. You know, it, so, it's it's sad because I, you know, I I've told people before I always replace my drives once a year. So as a matter of fact, I I'm replacing my my operating system drive, which is a Samsung 840 Evo. And I'm replacing it with the Samsung 850 Pro. 
And it's one of those things where it's like, yeah, it's only been actually, yeah, it's been right at a year. And it's just one of those things where I just go, "Ah, you know, I'm going to replace it. But I had a data drive that went after six months. And, you know, and again, it hit me. I mean, I had everything backed up, so that wasn't, I wasn't afraid of losing anything. It wasn't that, but to rebuild my system still took time and it sucked. So I have right. a, a, a hard and fast rule of, I just replace my drives every year and I've, and yeah, I've done and pretty cl- good. Cloning, <laughs> cloning is so much better than having to, cause you can take everything with you the exact same way. You can yep. grow it, you can expand it, you can shrink it. You can do everything that you're going to do, cloning your drive. Uh, or making a DD image. I mean, you could use tools that produce just a DD copy of your drive every day, so that you could just re, you know, clone it back. Right. If there's a death or something like that, because it is such a, a nightmare to try to rebuild a system yeah. back from scratch. A licenses, licenses being a nightmare. Um, I, I still wish, you know, PCs would go to the way at least Apple has traditionally gone to, which is very little is active or active based licensing. It's a know a serial number sitting in a file when you clone your drive it still comes back up and still works unless it's on office office is still microsoft somehow figures out a way to always screw everybody on the back end um <laughs> well I'll, I'll let you i've been having good luck with windows 10 so i've had because a lot of my customers have upgraded to windows 10 and because of that what i've done is when they when they brought a machine in and it's got a bad hard drive i replace the hard drive i install a clean install of windows 10 on there and i have not had to activate a system yet and everything just seems to be working from that standpoint. Now, we're not cloning it, obviously, because the hard drive went bad. But I'm hoping that this trend continues with what they're doing with Windows 10. And it makes our lives as techs a lot easier. Well, the, the problem is the applications, right? It's not the one, it's not the OS itself that's really the problem because activating something once is not that big a deal. The problem is you install 30 applications that all have to have serial numbers entered in again and then have to be reactivated. Whereas, you know, at least on Macs, normally for most of the applications, they're stored in a plist file. And then when you copy it over, you'll actually be able to take the serial numbers with you and you won't have to go through this entire activation serial number thing. Your stuff just works. And, uh, like I said, except for office, office doesn't do that, but, um, most of the other applications do. And I, that's the part about setting up a system. Like you try to set up an accounting system, you know, you've got 16 different applications that you've got to weave together and entering serial numbers, entering everything. It can take you a whole day just to set something up. That's the one piece that you need to work every day. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, that's true. It's even with the stuff that I do, and I use a lot of web-based stuff, and it's still by the time I get all everything. So I I will definitely report back because I'm going to clone this particular drive, and I'm going to put it back in the system, and we're we're going to see if you know things like my Adobe and and all that kind of stuff that I have subscription services. I, I would imagine those are going to work just fine. But even you know things like I've got Microsoft Office. I'm going to see if that stuff is going to give me a problem when I actually move that over. So we'll, we'll find out. <laughs> Gosh, I hope not. Cause I really don't want to deal with all that, but yeah, whatever. <laughs> right. No, I understand. I understand the dilemma. And you know, our other option is to finally be tired of all this and export everything we have into a VM. So we can just, you know, make copies of the VM mm. and then that way we don't have to keep fighting this all the time. That's yeah, that's a good so, idea. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, except that if you're doing some hardware stuff or a lot of I/O stuff, it, it does impact you greatly to be in a VM. Right, right. So it does it does hit me hard from some of the other stuff, but for an accounting system or something like that, then maybe I can make that work. Right, 
Oh, yeah, that's a good idea. All right, let's take a quick break, and then we'll get into some emails. Our show today brought to you by Reclaim Me Pro. Reclaim Me Pro is the all-in-one, highly configurable data recovery software for both beginners and experts. It recovers data from multiple file systems, including Windows, Linux, and Mac OS. You can find lost partitions. You can save and load your save state. It's equipped with a highly configurable disk imager. It does sector-by-sector, VHD, and VHDX. It reads most partitioning schemes from Microsoft to Linux. Powerful RAID analysis tools for complex RAID recovery. They also offer free data recovery training to help you understand partitions, file systems, RAID recovery, and more. For a free 14-day trial, go to reclaimme-pro.com. It's R-E-C-L-A-I-M-E-P-R-O.com. And when you decide to purchase, use the offer code PODNUTS for a 50% discount. All right. So let's go into our first email. All right, this is from Rod Dubicki. says, hi, Jeff. Just, just have to say I love all your podcasts, but my favorite by far is My Hard Drive Died. It's always very techie, which is great. That's because of Scott, not me. Uh, I have one question for Scott. I have a dedicated machine that is open frame, no case, that I use for backups and data recovery. It has a tie-in server class motherboard from a number of years ago and has served me very well. Recently, I had a number of clients' machines with Windows 8.1 that needed repair. Although it takes time, 95% of the time I take a full image of any drive before I attempt any repair. Good man. I have been bitten a number of times in the past and make this a practice. Yeah, I need to do that too. Uh, (laughs) These machines have uh, UEFI and has the GPT format. When I attach a drive to my backup machine, it hangs on the drive on boot up. The motherboard LED displays stop stops at code 75 and will not continue. In these instances, I have had to resort to attaching it via a SATA USB adapter and backing it up that way. That makes the process a lot slower. Is there some way of attaching it via SATA connections only, or must I purchase a motherboard with UEFI? Thanks for any help you can provide, and again, thanks for all the great information you provide. Rod from Brooklyn Computer Repair. What do you say so, uh, <laughs> so, Rod, uh, so here's the thing, and most people have a slight misunderstanding about how uh, motherboards and the stuff, and this is a good question. This is a, a great question from a standpoint. First off, I am assuming he is not booting on this client's drive. That He is uh, he is using another boot device, uh, you know, whether it be Windows or Linux or something else. He's booting on another device. Then he's using that to copy or clone over the system or using some tool to do this. So he's booting on something else. And this drive just happens to be attached to the system, which then as the drive is pulling for partition structures and stuff, it's now seeing that the GPT, because the old MBR-based system, uh, it's not going to see the partition structures in the same place because of GPT, so it throws it off. And so, therefore, it's looking for it or, or searching for it in some way, which is causing it to hang. And so, uh, that's what I'm assuming is that he's still booting on something else. So, here's the, here's the trick. Um, you can take a power adapter with a switch on it. So you get a switch for this drive that you're connecting so that the power that's going into it has a power switch that's off. So you go ahead and boot your system. Then you turn the switch on and then you go into whatever device manager, whether or not it's Linux or whether or not it's it's the Windows system, you go into device manager, right click and you say rescan and it'll rescan the entire device list and it will pull 
any connected devices. See, this is the part people always think is a misunderstanding is that your drive must show up in the BIOS when you are booting for you to be able to use it. That's false. It's completely false. Ah, the, okay. uh, the, the entire SATA chain, even an IDE chain, we could do this all the way back with IDE hard drives as well. You can plug them in. Uh, the problem has always been when you plug them in, if you didn't have an easy way to turn power on or off or it wasn't isolated, it would short the power supply and then your machine would crash. So you couldn't just plug it in on the fly. But if you use a separate power source for your drive, you can turn it on while it's still plugged in on the chain and then refresh the chain and it will repull the chain itself for any new devices that are on the chain. So uh, most people just completely misunderstand that that has to be on the chain when you're doing it. But using a separate power supply with an on and off switch will solve that problem. That is a great tip, and because I've, I've been having the same problems because my one of my bench machines that I actually use does not have, you can't make any of these SATA connections hot swappable. Where on my primary machine, I can make all the SATA connections in the UAFI hot swappable if I want. So I've got a hard drive dock, I can plug it in or whatever, and it's all going through the SATA chain. But on that older system, I can't. So is there something out there that you know of that they sell that is actually a power switch that you can kind of turn on and off that works well in this situation? Oh, yeah. You can buy – You can buy. they sell just regular hard – like if you were going to have an external hard drive connected to your system, like over a USB port as an example, they sell switchable power supplies for those. So you can just look up a switchable power supply for your hard drive, and it actually has the hard drive adapter and everything already done. Uh, I mean I have dozens of them. Uh, I'm trying to think of a brand off the top of my head, but uh, but there are ones that actually have a switch in line that you okay. can actually just turn it on and off. And so, so that's all you physically have to do. I mean, you can make your own with any switch, but there are uh, hard drive power switches. Great. So that's, okay. That's all you're searching for is a hard drive power switch, and you can you can turn it off. Have no power applied to that drive. Still have it connected to the SATA connector. It won't do anything. Your system will boot. You'll do all your normal stuff. Turn it on. Then pull the chain. Because that's that's where I've had a problem. Because I can't make those SATA connections hot swappable in this on this particular motherboard. Is what would end up happening? Sometimes I can get away with it. Sometimes I can't. I will plug a drive into the SATA connection through the board, but I'm using a power connector on the board. And when I go to boot up, for some reason, even though my other the you know the boot order is still supposed to be my primary drive, for some yeah, reason it pulls it yeah pulls that information. And sometimes it tries to boot. The customer's drive. Yep. Yeah. Uh, and the way you solve that problem is just to always have that power off. That's and great. So, okay. Which is, which, so, and, and again, I, you know, I don't want to make light of that there's, you know, something special about hot swappable. Technically, there's not. Technically, for the most part, it's always been there. The only thing is, is that in a lot of cases, when you say hot swappable, it means that the power chain itself also is part of that connect. So in other words, on IDE drives, people wouldn't say that they're hot swappable because you had, you know, these connectors you had to pull off and then the power you had to pull off. It wasn't easy to slide it into a bay. And when you went to SCSI drives, they had C connectors. So C connectors would have, you know, the entire thing, the power and the whole thing all together in one thing. So you could just easily slide it in and slide it out and it would apply power and do that. And the power disruption on the chain is sometimes part of the problem, but there's not it was always capable of doing this. Even IDE drives are capable of doing this. They just weren't easy to do it. Gotcha. Okay. Now that makes perfect sense. I, I love the switch idea because I'm definitely going to get on Amazon today and I'll, I'll find a couple and, and definitely order those and start using that in on my bench machine. That'll save me a lot of time. 
I know it, it seems like we've talked about it before, but I just I didn't remember until you said well, it, and it made perfect sense. I just went on online and looked, and Kingwin has a 6M1 hard drive power switch for drive bays. So you can physically turn on and off uh, six different hard drives into bays. And so uh, they're all, you know, so even if you're looking at that bay solution where you're sliding them in and out, they actually have this $27 solution that has power switches for every single switch for all, for six drives in a chain. So if you just look up Kingwin HDD-PS6, they have a power supply switchable system for six hard drives in a chain. Nice. Okay. Yeah, we'll definitely put that in the show notes. And uh, yeah, so Rod, I hope that helps you out and solves your problem. And great explanation, Scott. Appreciate that. All right. So let's go on to the second email. Okay. So this goes back to, I'm not going to read this whole email because it goes into a whole email from, I believe, the show before. And this is from Lyle Lassinger. It says, uh, and this is basically, it says, hey, hey guys, I should get a life. Don't ask why I really need to get a life. I use Clonezilla image to move my dual boot Intel SSD to a SanDisk SSD. I've got 40 more gigs. Well, not really. I can't expand it. Gparted, question mark, could be user interface. My question, I hope it's simple. It's a simple yes. If the image, the individual partitions and restore them to a new disk, how do I get the master boot record back? Do I use the Windows repair disk? Can I use something else? Not my new enemy, Darth G parted. Uh, I guess I'm really asking how the MBR and Clonezilla work. Something else must be going on. It it use it's using different a different ball game from Platter HD to SSD. Bytes read it once or something. It gets confusing. This was from a website telling how to use Clonezilla to go to a smaller drive. Well, let's kind of, I guess, stop there yep. as a whole. <laughs> exactly. I don't want to go any further. Than that. <laughs> All right. So, um, I mean, because, you know, we're getting into something that's very specific here in, in this cloning process. And there is some differences in going back and forth between SSDs and how SSDs swap stuff. They're really emulating a hard drive. So you really do have to be careful about what you do in dealing with SSDs. But, but for example, here's, here's kind of the easy thing from a standpoint of dealing with this. Um, so there's no real trick to the MBR. The MBR is pretty, uh, pretty simple as, as a whole. There's a four towards the bottom of the first sector in the MBR. In hex, you will see that there are four separate uh, locations for partition structures. Now, uh, there's, there are a whole line of, of data because there's 32 bits for where your beginning location is. There's 32 bits for where the end of the location is. There's a, a two bytes for where, uh, what type of partition structure you are. So you'll see like 07 equals NTFS. So you'll see things like this in the end of the partition structure. But a lot of times what I'll do is I literally open a hex editor and I copy the first sector. So if you have a first sector with a bootstrap, the bottom portion is the only portion you really need. If you actually wanted to hex edit, you can take Let's just say as an example, I took one SSD, I formatted it, and I do it exactly the way that I want the destination to be set up. But of course, I'm not going to move over the partition or do anything at this point because I don't really care about that. All I'm doing is formatting it to get the partition set up done so it would show up in the MBR. Then you can take that MBR, you can just hex edit it. You literally open a hex editor, cut the first 512 bytes out. That will be the size of the disk that you're going to. Because it'll have all the all the items written at the bottom in the partition information. Then on your source drive, you go ahead and clone that over to your destination. 
then you go rewrite the MBR, and it will magically make the partition structure because your partition will still you know, partitions are not really a huge mystery from that standpoint. They're really just an allotted amount of space. So it says where I start and how big am I. And so that's all done by the beginning of your location. This is just raw data that's being stored there. So at least from that standpoint, once you actually do this, you can cut and paste in hex the content from an MBR from one drive to another and make it expand that size or make it a smaller size. So you can literally say I have an 80 gig um, format this 120 gig, go cut out the MBR from the 120 gig after I formatted it, then clone my drive over and then rewrite that MBR back. Okay. All in right. hex. It's a, it's, I, I know I'm making it and it's probably, it's a very difficult thing to explain from that standpoint, but you could literally download a hex editor, format this hard drive that you want your destination to be, cut out the first sector. Just you literally open it up and say, I'm highlighting 512 bytes. You'll know you're at the end of 512 bytes because the last two characters, the last two four bytes will say 55AA. That's the end of the first 512 bytes. It'll say 55AA. Okay. You can cut and paste it onto another drive. And that will make your partition now, instead of 80 gigs, 120 gigs or whatever size that you have. So you can still clone it and do that. Um, you don't have to have this. You know, you don't have to go through G-parted and a bunch of other stuff to do this. It's easier to grow than it is to shrink. Shrinking also requires defragmentation and a whole other process. So um, it is a very complicated question from the standpoint <laughs> to try to explain on the radio or on a podcast. But, um, but you know, just trust me from that standpoint. If you really – it's all done physically at least for that component in the beginning of the first part of the MBR. MBRs are pretty simple. Yeah, and from that standpoint, I think even as as you were talking, I'm thinking it in my brain of how this works. It actually makes sense to me because I I understand a lot of us are into the whole, you know, we we use a lot of tools that are GUI based. You know, we might use some command line stuff, but to go into a hex editor and you know change you know change copy and paste that and change all that stuff, it, it seems like it might be complicated, but realistically, it's just kind of knowing what you're doing a little bit better. So well. Well, in, again, it's it's not a difficult thing. It's actually whole, not a whole lot different than using a word processor and cutting and pasting at this right. point because you can literally just plug in the drive. All I'm saying is is that you, the new drive that you want to go to that you want your partition to be bigger. Now, understand, you know, here's the most important thing is this will not work with GPT. If it's it's if it's UEFI and it's GPT, there's a whole other structure for partitions that exists there that's way more complicated than that. Whereas the MBR is a very old and very simple format, and it literally is, but you know, 32, 32 bytes that point to where I begin and where I end. So uh, 32 bits, or where I begin and where I end, and that's it. There's nothing else there. How big am I? Um, <clears throat> there's nothing. There's not a lot of other data there. But if you have GPT, you've got a whole nother you know pile of stuff that comes right after the MBR that then has the layout for all that content, and it does matter. So from a, from a layman's standpoint, as simply as you can, what is the difference between MBR and GPT? What what does it give us? Well, so you GPT has a couple of things. First thing is, uh, so it's it's a, a partition structure, which is called, it's a globally unique partition table, and there's going to be things that cannot overlap. So when we're dealing with MBRs, we only had 99 choices because we're only dealing with two bytes. So when you have different partitions, 
and again, we don't have a lot. It was a bigger problem back in the day, because, but there's something that's taken almost all the positions for all 99. So a, a, a GUID partition table is a huge number that is unique, that is not going to be duplicated by any other operating system or file system or anything that wants to use a new one as we come along. But it was done for redundancy. Uh, back in the days when we built the MBR, we didn't have any additional space. They so use as little space as possible. Uh, and make it as simple as possible because the processors were also a lot weaker. So they left the MBR even with GPT because it's protected. Uh, that way, any tools that write to the MBR don't affect the globally unique partition tables. So they start right after the GP, the MBR, and they also are redundant. The beginning of that table and what you have for your partition is duplicated at the end of the drive. So if a sector fails or you have something that goes bad, that there is a second location for the partition table. There is no second location for the MBR. The MBR, that's all there is. There's just one. It's at the beginning of the disk. It's in LBA0. And uh, the global unique partition tables have redundancy at the end of the drive, and they'll count backwards. So you'll have, here's partition one at the beginning, partition two, partition three, and there'll be a table for that content. Those will be then minus one, minus two, minus three at the end of the drive. So if a sector goes bad and there's some reason that the drive can't read that or boot, it will actually go and look at the end of the drive and pull a correct partition table because it's been duplicated. So the MBR is still there whether you, regardless of which one you use. It's just the GPT is adding something to it to make it better and more redundant. When you have a GPT, you don't actually need the MBR at all. However, ironically, there is one big <laughs> flaw with this problem, okay. and that's that Microsoft, uh, so Windows systems, and not the others, only Windows systems, uh, have a problem mounting partition structures because the Windows system looks at the beginning of the first sector and looks for that 55AA at the end of the sector. And it says, if I see 55AA, then I know I have a partition and I should try to mount it. And that's what brings up in your system the partition structure, when you're in the uh, device manager and you're looking at your drive management system and you see a partition that magically appears when you plug in a hard drive, well, uh, on the left-hand side, there's a little gray box and it'll tell you some information about your hard drive, the size and whatever it is. If you see a red circle there, you won't see a partition. You'll just see all the space. You'll just see raw space. And there'll be a red circle in that little gray box on the left-hand side. The only thing that makes that red circle show up is the fact that there is no 55AA. If 55AA is there, it considers the drive initialized and therefore will then look at the partition structure and mount it. So if you opened your hex editor and you changed 55AA to anything else, it will not mount your drive. Now, data recovery software will work perfectly fine. So we call it a poor man's write blocker. Uh, so basically, you could use a hex editor, change 55AA to 55BB as an example, and then your Windows system will not mount it, and it will never read and write any of those sectors, but you can still see it using software and other tools so that you can recover data from it. That way, a corrupted drive, when you plug it into your system, does not damage uh, – because you know how sometimes when you have like I've got a bunch of bad sectors. Even if you've cloned the drive and you've made a full copy of it, you may have sectors that never got copied over. Right. Right. And if Windows tries to touch those sectors and thinks that this is a file or a directory structure, it will cause it to blue screen and crash. So one of the things data recovery guys do a lot is change 55AA to 55BB so that uh, once you plug it into your system, it won't crash. You can still copy all your files, do all the stuff you would normally do, 
just that those sectors don't matter because Windows isn't trying to process it. You're using a tool to process it instead. Gotcha. Oh, that makes perfect sense too. Okay. A poor man's right blocker. I like that. Yep. And, and, and just so people can understand what I'm talking about, I'll try to uh, make a screenshot of one and send it to you so you can post it on the page or something so okay. you can actually see uh, what area I'm talking about. But there's, but it's easy to tell if you have no 55AA at the end of the first sector and you plug in the drive, you'll notice that Windows will say in disk management on the left-hand side, there'll be a spot where it'll say not initialized. And so uh, if you were manually formatting your drive and you plug in a new drive, there's this little gray box that says disk zero, what size it is, what your partition structure is, if there's any media or not any media. And so that area will have a red circle in it. Okay, great. So now would you recommend that people just just to see what it looks like, you know, download a hex editor and actually go in there and just look at the the structure on the drive to kind of see what you're talking about? And is there any, I guess, is there any scary things about, you know, that they could really mess things up from just kind of looking at it to see what the structure is or as long as they don't change anything? Well, you know, changing things, that's the problem, right? <laughs> so, uh I personally would say everybody should at least look at a hex editor and see what stuff looks like and see if they can start figuring out. Because once you, you, you know, it's something that as you do it often enough, it starts to make sense to you. You start okay. to see it and it, it starts to look a little bit like, you know, the Matrix where they could see the girl in red dress <laughs> and they knew that when it was going by in code. Right. And, and I know that when I'm looking at the screen, I go, oh yeah, there's a boot structure, there's that, there's a partition structure, there's a, you know, and I know that stuff when it happens. I even know it when JPEGs go by, oh, there's a JPEG, there's a, I might not be able to code she's wearing a red dress right. in my brain, but uh, I certainly can see, oh, there's Word documents, there's a, like, I can see those things as they're going through it. And I, it's a very common thing for me as a tech to look at my content on the drive in, in hex. Uh, for instance, if you're going to reassemble RAID arrays um, or anything, even if you're just – somebody gives you a memory stick who accidentally formatted their memory stick and they want to know if you can recover it. Well, if you look at it in hex, you'll know if it's zero. So you could just scroll through the drive, and if there's zeros, then it was really overwritten. The content's gone. Whatever they used to erase it really is there. So it doesn't matter how many times you run that through a tool that says, I'm going to recover your photos. It's just going to look at every sector for an hour, and you're still not going to get any pictures. And I'll know in 30 seconds that there is um, nothing that's going to be recoverable. Okay. And I see people do this all the time. They'll put a, they'll take a tool. They'll start to do photo recovery. They'll run it through one. It doesn't find anything. Then they run it through another one, and eventually they kind of give up. But if you just open up a hex editor, you can see right away and be like, oh, there is content on here. What is it? And like, for instance, the JPEG, which is going to be most of the stuff your local cameras, your regular cameras are going to do, are going to start with FFD8. So you can actually search for the beginning of a sector to start with FFD8. And if you see that, you'll be able to see. Sometimes you'll even be able to see the XF information right behind it that'll say, I took this with a Canon camera. Blah blah blah. So I don't need to know right away, um, you know, that the tool is going to be successful. But I do know that there is data there that I can probably recover. Whether or not I'm going to get the whole picture, that might be a different story. But it's a very common thing. And uh, rate arrays, for example, a lot of rate arrays in the last uh, 120 sectors or so of the drives, they'll have serial numbers for all the drives that belong in the array, and sometimes in order. So you'll know what your drive – somebody gives you a mystery box, and there's four hard drives in it, and you don't know what order to plug them in to reassemble them. If you go look at the last 120 sectors of a drive, it may have the serial numbers of every drive, and it may have them in order. So you know this is zero, this is one, this is two, this is three. 
and then you can plug them into a tool. Now, this is one of the things like Reclaim Me Pro, like uh, the tool that, that is sponsoring the show. That's what it does. Is it, It's one of the things. It has a very complex list of things that it does if it's trying to do RAID reassembly. But that would be one of the things it does is try to also look at these sectors that might have identifying characteristics of the drive that would say, these are the drives, these are the order, this is, this is what it is. And I'm doing it in hacks. A lot of times, you know, there's a lot of times that, you know, sometimes tools don't work or that there's um, somebody scrubbed three of the drives in the array. And when you do that, you're not going to get any data back no matter how many hours you wait on a tool to finish. <laughs> okay. No, that makes perfect sense. It, uh, yeah. Anything you can be more expedient with time, that's that's great. And I, uh, yeah, you got me curious now. I am going to definitely take some time and mess around with a hex editor and just kind of, you know, just start looking at things a little bit differently, start getting into the nitty gritty and, and stop, you know, depending just on all my gooey tools to do my job. <laughs> yeah. I, there's, there's so much value in it. And I'll tell you the hex editor that I recommend the most. Um, and it, it, it's, there's two or three different levels of it because there's a forensics version that's like $800 and builds cases and does all kinds of things. But, um, WinHex, uh, X-Ways Forensics and WinHex. WinHex is the sister product. They sell uh, like three different levels of WinHex. And the one thing about it, not, it's not just a hex editor. It's a hex editor that understands partition structures and format. So it can help you out in things that other hex editors are just going to give you access to raw space that you have to edit. Um, it, it, it does help. So I would certainly say if you haven't looked at a tool like WinHex, that's what you should you should at least start with uh, one of their versions. And the specialist version actually does RAID reassembly. It doesn't do it automatically. You have to know what you're doing. But if you're going to spend time in a hex editor, do that. Um, the other thing is, um, amazingly, so RStudio. Um, RStudio is a data recovery tool that is like seventy nine dollars. It's uh, for the single home user version. It's a it has a built in. Uh, hex editor, you can right-click on any drive or any partition or any file, and you can say view edit. And it has a pretty powerful built-in hex editor that understands partition structures and things as well. And I'm amazed by how useful it is and how, um, you know, for something built into another tool that was kind of like just a, you know, a second thought sometimes – it's extremely powerful and extremely useful. It may be worth buying it just to be able to look at the heck, you know, because some hex editors are very expensive and there's ways um, to do with stuff. And then another one that I find that's fantastic because if you're on a Mac, um, sometimes you get slighted because you don't have all the same tools and you don't have some of the abilities uh, because Macs are protecting their drives and doing certain things. Um, it's called O1O Editor. And O1O, they have, they have a PC version as well. Uh, but on the PC side, I tend to use uh, WinHex because WinHex is pretty much the standard. It's the most awesome thing that there is out there. Uh, but they don't have that for a Mac. But uh, Sweetscapes is a software tool that made one for PCs, Linux, and Mac. So you can stay in the same platform throughout all three of those tools. Um, I think it's like 50 bucks or, or something. And if you buy the commercial version, it's you know 100, it says 129 and the standard the standard user version is fifty bucks, and it's it's an awesome tool, even because on a Mac, like I said, you get slighted a lot of times. You don't have all the power and all the same tools. It's the most powerful of the tools that I can remember using on a Mac um, that gives me access to all those things. On Linux, you've got a lot of options, and uh, Linux has a lot of free stuff. 
But if you want to stay in the same platform where you've learned a tool and it's the same amongst all the platforms, then just try O1O because O1O will go between all three of the platforms um, and ha- and understands this and has layouts and templates. Um, it's the closest thing I can think of to X-Ways Forensics or WinHex that's uh, that's not. Okay. If that makes sense. Yeah. So. So look at those tools. Those are those are my, kind of my three favorite kind of go-to tools. Excellent. Very cool. All right, let's move on to another email. We have, this is from, I'm not sure who this is from. He didn't put a name or he or she didn't put a name in here. And I don't know if the email is the, their, their name or a combination of their first and last name, so I'm not going to attempt it. Anyways, it says, hello, I really enjoy your podcast. They are filled with great information. I am a retired computer field service tech, and it is refreshing to hear someone discuss computers and peripherals with such clarity. Again, that's Scott. Uh, thank you and Scott for taking time to share your knowledge. On a recent podcast, Scott mentioned that Mac HFS file system had problems. I've recently switched over to the Mac and format my external hard drives and thumb drives as HFS and sometimes as XFAT. On a future podcast, could you talk about HFS and its problems? Any discussion of XFAT would also be greatly appreciated. I have one. Re- I have recommended your podcast to many folks. I see at my Apple Store, or see at my Apple Store one-on-one or one-to-one sessions. Thank you again for the informative podcast. Well, thank you for the email. Definitely appreciate that. So, Scott, what do you say? Okay, so uh, so back to file systems, and uh, now we're dealing with very old file systems. All of them are very old except for uh, XFAT. Uh, so NTFS, HFS, uh, FAT, all those other versions are all um, 1995 or earlier. Uh, I'm sorry, 1985. Wow. 1985 or earlier. Uh, so HFS, first version of HFS was in... Uh, September of, uh, I think it was September of 1985. Um, Before that was MFS, which was a terrible file system for Macintosh file systems. Um, And then prior to that, uh, there already was development on OS2. And OS2 became basically the code, you know, the code sharing base and the split, the base is Windows NT and then became XP and so on and so on. Uh, there's been several renditions of that. I don't want to start a big old battle about what code source and the whole thing is because there would be a battle just for me saying that. <laughs> but but uh, NTFS is really HPFS, which is high performance file system. And the reason that I'm going to say that HFS is bad, HFS and HFS plus. HFS plus is basically all the Linux attributes were added to HFS and then HFS kind of grew when Steve Jobs came back, because when Steve Jobs left uh, Apple in 85, he started Next, and Next was a BSD derivative. Uh, So he basically made Darwin from BSD, and he didn't want to rebuild the entire file system and operating system from the ground up again, so basically he used another system. Now, when 1997 comes along, Next bought Apple, or Apple bought Next, however you want to look at it, right? (laughs) and Steve Jobs comes back. And so they basically had to build HFS into a wrapper so that they could then have HFS Plus so that HFS Plus would include all the attributes that existed in BSD that were in Darwin when he had Next Step. So I'm crossing a lot of things here, and it may be confusing to people. But you know, fundamentally, um, HFS has these inherent problems. Um, when HFS was designed, it was a great it was great back in 1985, and I don't think anybody thought that in you know 20. 15 that we would still be using this uh, the way it is. It's a daisy chain together tree. So it's a B tree. 
And so it starts at the root and builds a tree and then builds nodes from that and where levels them automatically. So every time that the tree gets two-thirds full, which I think they're calling – and I'm not 100% positive because I haven't been able to figure out what they call full. But 10,000 files is what it looks like. There's 10,000 entries in every node, and every time that there is a branch in the node that reaches about 6,000, it re um, re peers itself basically rebuilds itself in this process so that all the peers are all at the same level okay and the reason i say this is a problem is there's no redundancy anywhere uh if you lose a sector at the root you lose the whole tree if you lose a branch you lose all the branches that follow so and it could be a simple one single sector that has a problem or some you know problem during a write failure or a power outage on your laptop while it was writing something um, while it's rebuilding you know this tree or doing something could happen and and it does and it happens all the time so a lot of times when I'm rebuilding from a Mac it's not uh, damage to the drive necessarily it might be one single sector that's bad but then the entire tree then gets destroyed so if I can recover that sector or recover from that branch then I can get all those files back but you lose a sector you lose the entire branch because you can't parse this tree very efficiently. And so it's fast, and that's really the, the, the key about it is that it's a fast process because it's a B-tree format, and B-tree has to do with an algorithm for hashing and for figuring out where content is. But as a whole, um, having a single-sector failure is a tremendous and huge problem. Whereas by comparison, the reason I brought up OS2 and NT is that so NTFS, which was really HPFS, High Performance File System. So every folder and file is two single sectors. So it's two sectors. So if you have a single sector failure, you might end up in a situation your drive doesn't boot. So I'm not talking about your booting your drive. I'm talking about recovery of your drive. So in these particular section, sectors, if one of them goes bad, at worst you're going to lose one folder or one file. You're not going to lose an entire branch because the B tree can't process this catalog. So in these particular instances, it's it's less detrimental. Almost always the rest of the file system will survive with problems like that. And it's it's almost ingenious from a standpoint of looking at the way um, the NTFS file system works and the MFT entries work because they all stand alone. And anytime I'm working on something, I can go and search for individual records, and they also have a reserved amount of space where you know, when you reformat your drive and reinstall it, the reserved space is still reserved. So you still have files that you can recover from because they weren't overwritten because it's in reserved space. So there's things like that that happen that make it extremely robust and very recoverable, whereas – and they're both about the same age. It's just two different theories behind how you build a drive, and – when you say daisy chain your file system together, that's a bad process uh, for today. For right. today, for for redundancy, for it was fast when you know back in the day, and that there wasn't you know a, a whole slew of other types of problems that you could cause along the way, and file systems were very small and very fast. But today, we're now you know carrying this bulk around. We should really be on ZFS. Apple should have already gone to ZFS, and they didn't because of a lawsuit that happened. And so they pulled ZFS from their tree and decided not to use it. And this whole thing with Solaris getting bought by Oracle and then NetApp. And there's a whole big fight that goes on. But really, there should be a new way for the file system to be stored and protected that is not being done efficiently in HFS. But now you know, they're at the precipice of, of, of where a change could be hugely detrimental to them. When they made a change to 
HFS to HFS Plus back in 1997, they put it in a wrapper, and there actually was a box that would pop up when you were not on an upgraded file system, and the box would say, where have all my files gone? And you click on it, and it basically says, well, they're not supported in this file system. They're supported in you know, 8.6 or whatever, so you must upgrade your system. And it was a forced upgrade. But all three people that had Macs were mad. But you know what kind of stink are they going to make? All, all three of them. So now if you do something like that, uh, there's going to be a whole slew of people that are going to be really upset. And so changing your file system is something you take with great care at this point. Um, now, XFAT is a newer file system. And it was really developed for a couple of reasons. One is um, none of our file systems store things like um, they don't – time has always been a problem. Time is a huge problem. When you change time zones and when you move around the country and things like that, you don't have your UTC time and your local time and things like that. So there is in XFAT locations for your time comparison. If you move from one location to another, you have to be really cautious about – if you're doing forensics exam as an example – you don't know what time zone it was in. And the machine doesn't automatically necessarily always change its time zone. And if it doesn't connect back to the internet, there could be some other. So there's all kinds of issues with your file system not knowing time zones and where you're at doing stuff in this global world that we're in now. Right. Um, so XFAT has positions to store that stuff. They also have other things like they can store GPS coordinates. All the things that pictures and photos had to do in EXIF information, which is uh, it's extended information for you know GPS coordinates, all, name of a camera, uh, all this, like all of those things have a place that they can exist in the file system in XFAT. So XFAT is a much more robust file system from that standpoint. The problem with XFAT is no one's had to write code about file systems and their applications and how to handle it in 30 years. So those people are all dead or gone or don't work for the company anymore. So when you have a new camera that has to now use XFAT, you have a whole new generation of young kids who are writing code who don't necessarily understand file systems and how all this stuff works. And so a lot of times your camera will corrupt XFAT because it's not doing uh, all the functions and it can't be alive like the camera turns off. And so it can't manage it like a system can. Um, XFAT was originally written for a Windows CE phone. So it was originally for the Windows CE phone back between – it was released in 2006, but it was prior to 2006 that they were trying to deal with this problem of solid-state drives dying and overriding stuff and doing things. And so XFAT was developed to solve a particular problem for a system that's on and lives in perpetuity. Uh, but it has not um, – that's not where it's mostly used today. It's mostly used on thumb drives and storage devices today. And so cameras, cars, um, you know, external drives, and both Mac and Windows support XFAT. Uh, Linux has a hacked-together driver for that, and Microsoft actually specifically made it so that Linux would not be able to copy it and use it legitimately without buying a license or paying for code. Uh, so it's you know copy protected, copyrighted from that perspective, and um, and basically Microsoft will try to sue everybody who's trying to go down that path with XFAT. But the guy who wrote the driver doesn't live in the United States, so he doesn't care about these laws. So <laughs> uh, and so it may not be a complete rendition of all the things that happen, and that's the problem with XFAT is that all this code that people have written is kind of hacked together. Nobody has a real standard and everything. So it's easy to cause corruption in XFAT at this point. So 
you know, by far, at least of these three that we've discussed, NTFS is far more robust. Um, I actually believe the Linux file system uh, uh, using EXT is a far more robust way of doing it because they actually duplicate a lot of data and metadata across the drive. And it's very slow, though. That's the problem. It's okay. very slow to duplicate that data. However, it is very robust in the fact that if there's errors or damage, in a lot of cases, it will survive and you can find it. So I know this is a very long answer, but fundamentally, um, HFS has a huge problem and eventually it's going to, you know, it's it, it, it's got a lifespan. At some point in time, they're going to have to make a choice because it can't keep growing like this. Whereas, you know, NTFS can keep doing the exact same thing because it's only used in two sectors. There's no real over overhead or space or or issue from that standpoint and it will hold up very well okay uh, no that makes a lot of sense i you know I, you taught me a lot today I've, I've definitely learned a little bit of history behind the file systems that i you know had no idea so, <laughs> no i appreciate it and yeah very good anytime. explanation <laughs> well, anytime i know it's long and drawn out hopefully fans appreciate it oh i i'm sure they will you know the to me, what I hear from a lot of people is the geekier the better. So they they like to get down in the you know nitty gritty and figure out. Oh yeah, okay, that makes sense to me, and you know learn things. So, all right, let's move on to our last email of the show, and this is from well, it says Comcast, but I'm not sure why. Oh, I'm sorry, John Jones. It says I've listened to you for a long time on the Podnut Show, and now the MHDD podcast. One question I had for Scott was what software hard drive monitor program does he suggest or does he not use one? I've been using StableBit since I heard it on one of your programs, but haven't heard Scott talk about any. Thank you very much for your shows, John Jones. Thank you, John, for the email. And Scott, is there anything, any hard, hard drive monitors that you use? Um, I don't really pay that much attention to the, mo like, in other words, um, all of my data is redundant. Everything's backed up everywhere. I'm not really too concerned about it, and I'm not having to pay that much attention. However, I can see in a situation where if you were in charge, and I used to be in charge of, of, of dealing with management systems where we were – and we were using things like back in the day that we were using um, – you know, Crystal Mark makes a, a Crystal Disk Info, and that it runs and does basic smart tests and things like that. Um, the, the problem is this. is And, and most, most operating systems today have – at least basic monitoring built in. And that's so that's the other thing is that um, Macs do at least support and look at smart. Uh, so does um, Windows 7 and later will support and look at it as well. And Linux has its own variations of those as well and actually has a great tool that's a, a smart control is the name of the one in Linux. And if I have my option, I would use smart control and that there's a, another tool called G smart control that's in Linux. And they make versions that will run in Mac and in Windows. So when I do have to examine one, uh, one part of it is a, is a command line tool. So uh, smart control, S-M-A-R-T-C-T-L uh, is is a is a basic command line functioning tool that works in all three operating systems, and then they have G Smart Control, which is a GUI tool that can sit on top of it that you can then control and do different things. But you can do everything you want with Smart Control, and I would say that's the most robust of most of the tools that I've seen. But there are tools out there in Windows and Macs that can actually monitor um, Smart, but they don't always monitor it very extensively. They'll just say good or bad. They don't really have a lot of other items in it. Crystal Disk Info has some basic stuff. Um, what you really want is to be able to use um, 
you know, uh, G Smart Control and Smart Control tools to do extensive tests. There actually is an extensive testing process, and I do it on drives that I need to do that on. Uh, and Smart will actually have a huge test platform where you can do these extensive tests, and it reports back a lot of raw data. There are some things that are misunderstood about Smart because Smart. Uh, when people try to tell you what that text means, like they'll it, it, it understand that's not coming from the drive. The numbers coming from the drive, but the text that they're displaying to you that says reallocated blocks or throughput performance or any of those things, somebody made that up and said, at this number, at this position, this is what this number is supposed to mean. What you really want to do is you want to go like if you're going to do SSD drives as an example, SSD drives don't have like a head that moves across the drive. So the smart table that it was responsible for you to say uh, head timeout or, or spin up time or things like that. They're not reliable. So what you can do is go download the data, uh, the data stats page for your drive, and then look where that position is supposed to be. And you can tell what it's supposed to be for that number in that position. You can actually pull that information using uh, smart control. So as, again, S M A R T C T L. Um, okay. That's really, and that's one of the reasons why I'm very cautious about what I use as far as these tools is because what they're displaying to you is not an actuality. It's a generic number that supposedly is applied through all these other drives, whereas there actually is a table that's used for smart that on the data page will tell you every position and what they are supposed to mean. And so you could pull your raw data and then look at it rather than relying on some tool that says anything because the only one that matters to you um, that will tell you there is a lifespan one. Some of them for SSDs have a lifespan one. That would matter to you if you want to look at lifespan, that they'll store the data in a table that you then know, need to know where it is because somebody else's tool might label it, you know, seek error or something like that. It may have nothing to do with that device and what the label says. So just understand those things when we're talking about monitoring tools or if you're, there, as far as I know, no manufacturer makes one specifically for their own drives at this point. Maybe somebody does, maybe Samsung has one or somebody, but um, I just generally don't have to do those things because if I, any of my systems can die, they can be missing in action and I have it, everything redundant someplace else already. As I'm working on it, I mean, I use, I do use other tools that do syncing live while I'm working on something. Um, so Dropbox is the main one I use like on a Mac when I'm live and I'm working on presentations. When I make a change to a, a, a presentation, it automatically is then syncing to six other systems. So Gotcha. Okay. There, there is obviously some other things that you need to do to get backups and do things as well. But, um, you know, monitoring from that standpoint, just always assume your drive is temporary because by the time somebody told you that there was something wrong with it, it might already be too late. One, I think the hard part for a lot of us is, and I think a lot of questions I keep getting is that, you know, is there something to monitor it, you know, on an ongoing basis? And really, a lot of these tools that we're talking about, you basically either are going to take time to kind of pull that drive, whether it's an operating system drive or whatever, off to the side, run these tools on it and see if everything's okay. But, you know, how many people are really going to do that on an ongoing basis? I know that my Samsung, you know, magician software you know, supposedly, you know, it's, hey, if it says good, I, I just look at it and go, okay, right now it's good. But I, I really don't know yet. It says, okay, it's 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 wrote uh, seven terabytes over the last 11 months. Okay, um, great. <laughs> but, but what, you know, and even things like Crystal Disk Info, when that information comes up and it shows it in yellow and says, you know, it couldn't read 200 sectors, does that mean that 
the drive is, I mean, obviously the drive's going bad, but how bad is it? Because a lot of people will have those in those systems, you know, sometimes for years and it just well, runs. I, I understand, but my opinion is, and this is part of the problem with them just doing this color coding system, you know, red, <laughs> yellow, <right>. whatever. <laughs> like that's not really indicative of what the particular problem is. There's all these tables, and and uh, and so I just emailed you a picture that you can actually put up on the site as well of the okay. content from a smart control when you actually run it, and it'll show you some of the data from that standpoint. It's just pulling tables, but understand again the list of things that they say it is is not necessarily so. You know, temperature matters. Um, the spin retry counts will matter. Right. Um, okay. Reallocated sectors is the most important one. But the problem is with reallocated sectors is, is that it's not always indicative of an actual single sector. Like in other words, if you're on a, on a 4K drive, if you're on a 4K drive and you have a single sector failure, you actually have eight. So it will immediately go to eight. There won't be zero, one, two, three. It'll immediately be eight. So – but it is one sector as far as the drive is concerned, but they are 512-byte sectors, but they're on a 4K drive. So we're talking about what's called the advanced format hard drive. And so where they've combined them logically, but um, you know they're only giving out to you 512 bytes at a time. So you have to kind of understand what it is that you're reading and looking at that. But if I get any reallocated sector counts, I'm going to consider that there's a future impending failure that's going to happen uh, – Okay. Right away. So good, good rule of thumb, I think. A good rule of thumb is every drive is temporary. Exactly. Uh, I, I like that. Exactly like a floppy disk. And whatever you're dealing with, if it's important, you better have a backup. And my opinion is RAID 6, at least, gives you you know more redundancy. But you should still consider a backup or if your data is gone, how bad are you going to be hurt? Yeah. No, you need to, I mean, yeah, you need to back up all over the place. <laughs> you need a local backup. You need a cloud backup. You need, Well, and I harp know. on that a lot, but a lot of people just want to keep their drives running and know what's running. And, it, you know, if you get reallocated sector count, if you use any smart tool, it'll report reallocated sector count. And if you get that error, then you've got a problem. But if you're on SSDs, understand your life is different. You really need to go and download the data, the data spec sheet for your drive, find the area on smart. Find out what those items are, and then go look at those. So when they say ID and they say IT, you know, there's no spin retry count on a solid state drive. So ID number ten is going to be something else, and in your table it will tell you what that is. And one of those is called lifespan counter. Now, if you look at the lifespan counter, it's going to say um, how many times that you have written, and if you know how many times that your drive. So if it's an MLC, then you know you can write ten thousand times to a particular sector. So it will tell you how many times that you've already written on average across all your sectors. So that would be a good indicator as you're approaching 8,000 or 10,000 writes that your drive is going to have a failure sooner or later. That's a, that's a good point. You know, and that's why I replace my drives once a year, whether I need them or not. And I, and I put them into a less, you know, complicated system or, or a system that really doesn't matter if it dies or whatever. Well, the nice thing in that process, if you're doing that, is that you could use your old hard drive as backups. And so at least then you've, you've forced yourself into a backup routine, um, you know, that, you know, kind of grandfathers your drives into that process. And there are syncing tools. Like I said, you could use um, a vice versa as, as a tool just for syncing. You can just put all your other drives in another machine somewhere and sync A to B. And that's all you have to do um, to at least have your files handy. Right. No, that's a good point. Very good point. All right, let's add, and let's add. I'm going to ask you one last question before we end off this show. I know we've kind of 
kind of gone long, but um, this has been a driving question. And this came from a door-to-door geek, a.k.a. Steve McLaughlin, our patriarch of the Podnets Network. And we were talking one day, and he said, BitRot, do your files degrade if they have not been touched on a hard drive? So it's it's not the file that's the problem, right? It's the, the drive itself, the okay. content that's on the drive. If you don't touch sectors for a while, there's and it's not so much that you didn't touch them. There is going to be at any point in time over the lifespan of a drive. If you took a drive, you wrote data, and you put it on the shelf for 10 years, that there is going to be a process by which the data escapes, per se. Okay. Uh, the magnetic material starts to... to degradate over time and so and it does happen on ssds as well you have a lifespan for uh seven to ten years on ssd drives once you've stored data on a drive and you know any ssd whether it be a thumb drive a memory stick uh you know from a camera after seven to ten years if it's sitting on a shelf the electrons dissipate from the from their cells and your data disappears and so there is in all of these processes no long-term storage that we have that would say exceed ten years. I would say I would say relatively, you should think of it in a four to five-year lifespan, uh, whether it be shelf life or otherwise. Now, there's one other thing, which is so your drive is running, you leave your system on all the time, your head is floating over the platter. There's always been a belief that your head floating over the platter was going to cause a problem at that particular location if it just sat at one spot all the time. So manufacturers about 8 to 10 years ago started moving the heads every 15 seconds. So every 15 seconds, your head might move one track. So all of the current modern drives will move the heads in a period of, of a certain time. may not be exactly 15 seconds, but generally speaking, other drive manufacturers, they will do that because they're afraid that their heads floating over the platter would cause a weakness in magnetism because basically you've got a lot of stuff happening at the same time and you've got magnets floating other magnets and area that may cause physical damage. So they do move your heads across the platters over time. But yes, a uh, I have a case going on right now where um, the drive is 10 years old. It has not been touched in 10 years. It's been sitting in an evidence locker for 10 years, oh. but, but had to be re-imaged due to uh, some problem that the um, – I don't want to say the party's involved, but let's just say the party wasn't me. Uh, the party messed up and lost the data for the working copies, and so – they needed to go back to the original evidence in an evidence locker and pull the original hard drives. And so now they have not been touched in nine years, and the hashes do not match. So, oh. just, so just so you know, um, yes, there is some degradation of that that happens over time and dissipation, uh, even whether they're in use or they're not in use. So it's not a particular file, though. It's not file rot per se. Um, it's sector rot per se. Gotcha. Right. No, that makes perfect sense. Okay, very good. Yeah, I, I was thinking the same thing. I'm thinking, you know, five years max on any of this stuff and then basically throw it out and replace it with something else. Yeah, you migrate. You yeah. migrate to a new system and you move your stuff over and you copy your stuff, but you don't let it sit there. And so pictures are the danger, right? Because people put pictures on disks and they leave them there for years and oh, then they yeah. go them, expect to have them. Um, and so really they need to live in some way or you need to refresh them or copy them to another drive on a frequent basis. Sounds good. Well, again, Scott, I appreciate you taking the time out and coming and sharing all this great information with us. I learned a lot. I hope the audience learned a lot too. And what what types of things do you have coming up here in the near future? I know you've got some classes and different things you're working on. 
Yeah, I have a uh, I have a class in two weeks, which by the time this podcast comes out, probably it'll <laughs> be in play or something happen. But uh, but I do have an Atlanta class here in two weeks, and then following that, um, I am supposed to go to Australia in December. So we're you know we're trying to drum up our class sales so that there'll be enough to go there. Um, so we we constantly gain some and lose some so we get some you know we'll get 10 or 11 and then all of a sudden you know four people will be i don't have funding or i don't have a budget or something happens and they can't you know they drop out so we're always in flux with that kind of thing especially in a country like australia where it's very expensive for me to fly there go there do do a class but in december uh december 7th i believe i'm supposed to have a class in australia so anybody that hears this that's interested that wants to show up in australia you know feel free to contact me and you know let's get this gig going so uh so now next year i already have some forensics cases i also you know i testify in criminal cases as well and i have uh two coming up uh february and june that already you know taken positions for next year and one of them will probably be on television so uh if that happens, I'm one of the next podcasts. I'll tell you about it uh, when I'm going to be on TV testifying in a forensics case. <laughs> nice. Oh, that'd be cool to watch. You guys, you can find all the information for Scott over at myharddrivedied.com. All his information of classes coming up, different things that he does. You can go to his YouTube channel from there, check out his videos, uh, Twitter, and all that. So definitely go ahead and check that out. He, he gives out a lot of free information that you guys can use in your day-to-day business. If you guys have any questions for the show, please email us at mhdd at podnuts.com. And if you want to leave a voicemail, we'll play it on the show. You can call 1-888-697-0162. And I want to thank Reclaim Me Pro for sponsoring this episode of My Hard Drive Died. And I want to thank everyone for listening and subscribing to the show. We'll see you next time on My Hard Drive Died. Music provided by Steve Cherubino at stevecherubino.com.